Good morning. This is the Eager Beaver Show. You are listening to a True North Eager Beaver Media Incorporated podcast. The True North Eager Beaver podcasts are proudly brought to you by our founding sponsors. The Misfy Mysteries from Corvid Moon Publishing, your source for science fiction, fantasy, and cozy mysteries featuring a broad diversity of characters. CanadianTarot.com, your uniquely Canadian online eclectic tarot community, and the Peppermaster. Hot pepper sauces made from farm-fresh ingredients to thrill your taste buds and expand your mind. Good morning, and hello, kids, and welcome to Season 3 and Episode number 303 of, no, 304 of the Daily Beaver Morning Show here on the Cryer Media Network. Yeah! Today, recording day is Friday. I got a Friday. January 26, 2024, and it is a bit of a drizzly day here at the Beaver Lodge. Temperatures are already above zero, but some freezing rain falling. I can hear it outside my window. Today, we have a treat for you. We have a very special interview. Actually, more of a conversation because we don't do traditional interviews. No, we like to have a chat over a cup of coffee on a Friday morning. Exactly. I'm your host, the Eager Beaver, pronouns he, him, hey, Mr. Beaver A, and as you can hear, with me is my dear friend, Mr. Grizzly. A big thank you goes to our podcast founding sponsors, The Pepper Master, The Miss V Mysteries from Corbin Moon Publishing, and CanadianTarot.com. Before we do anything else, Mr. Grizzly, how's your mental health today? Sir, I woke up at five, like I normally do, and I was a little scronkly. I had tossed and turned throughout the night. I woke up at 2 a.m. with horrible heartburn. Bad decision to eat spicy quesadillas at 11 p.m. I just, I had a craving. I was hungry. They were in the freezer. I'm like, I'm going to heat up one. Just slather it in sriracha. And yeah, that was a terrible idea. I'm having visions of Jamie Lee Curtis and True Lies. Make good choices. (laughs) Make a good choice. And I'm going to regret it throughout the day. I guarantee you. Uh, my stomach is still scrongly, so yeah, this could make for an interesting show this morning. But um, mental health-wise, uh, I'm feeling great. Like I said yesterday, that dark cloud of depression that has been hanging over my head for the last few weeks has been lifted, and I feel like myself again. Uh, as, as I said yesterday, I, despite having clinical depression and the medication I help, I take helps me a great deal. There are times when the medication doesn't solve everything. And there are times when the depression kicks in. But what is different different to me these days with the medication is that 
I still feel happy. I don't hate myself anymore, but I can go weeks with a little bit of self-loathing and a lot of feelings of emptiness and abandonment and despair, but not like it. They're not to the point where I can't leave my house. Mm. And those were, that's what it was like in the old days. I would take a sick day and it was not because I was physically ill. It was because mentally my, I couldn't get out of bed. And right. it's funny, we don't have sick leave for mental health. That's true. And working in construction, there was no room for mental health issues back in my day. It's been four years since I've worked to construction of any type, and I'm never going back to it because my body is broken as a result, but my spirit was broken as well. And now that my spirit is healed and that my mind is doing much better, thanks to medication, meditation, and efforts to be healthy and having a, a wonderful partner who has just gone above and beyond to accommodate me when I'm going through a difficult period. Uh, Bridget, you have no idea how much I love you, babe, but sorry, I get a little emotional there. Let's move on. <laughs> I don't want right. to start crying first thing in the morning. It's Friday. I'm happy. We have a wonderful guest. I can't wait to meet him. Yes, I'm doing really well. I'm like that kid at Disney. I set my alarm to ring at a certain time and I woke up half an hour before it was supposed to ring. Because... <laughs> and even though I prepared and planned everything, kids. <laughs> yeah. I sent everybody the links for everything last night before going to bed for some reason. Tech still hates me. <laughs> yes. It kept on sending our guest and everyone involved the link to our YouTube. So you could restream watch. rather than the stream from the participate in the interview. Had a little bit of panic about five minutes before going <laughs> on air, but everything's smooth and settled now. So let's, hey. Inter that's introduced to our guest, was born in Maniwaki, is a member of the Algonquin community, and I hope I pronounce this right, of Kitigan Zibi. He was the National Chief of the Congress of Aboriginal Peoples from February 2006 to January 2009. He was named to the Senate in December 2008 by Prime Minister Stephen Harper, currently sits as an independent Algonquin senator, and he was the third youngest senator ever appointed and is currently the youngest sitting senator. He supported efforts to hold an inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in 2012. He actually performed an original song dedicated to these women and girls called Please Come Back to Me live on CTV's PowerPlay. A very vigorous advocate of accountability, responsibility, and transparency regarding Indigenous affairs. He's a vocal proponent for replacement of the Indian Act with more progressive legislation that aims to reconstitute true historical First Nations, including jurisdiction over their own affairs. He has served in the Canadian Armed Forces, the Naval Reserve, HMSC Carleton, and has a second degree black belt in karate, and holds a diploma in social sciences from Heritage College, and has also studied civil law at the University of Ottawa. And of course, as many of you, if you've already figured out who it is, participated in a famous boxing match with the current prime minister before he was prime minister. And that match raised more than $250,000 for cancer research. Which is awesome. Which is very awesome. Kids and cubs, please put your paws up and give a big round of applause for Senator the Honorable Patrick Brazo. There we go. Good morning and welcome to the Beaver Lodge, sir. How are you? 
Good morning to both of you, and thank you very much for that uh, warm and uh, kind uh, introduction. Oh, we are so, so happy to have you. Um, before we get started on every, anything, though, when we have our guests, because I always ask Mr. Grizzly, how's your mental health doing today? How is your mental health doing today, sir? Thank you for asking. Uh, today, I'm doing very well. Um, it's not, unfortunately, it's not like that each and every day. And those who do suffer from mental health issues know that uh, one, it's not always easy to live with whatever we're living with. And two, it's hard to explain to people who really don't understand or or may not want to understand. But that being said, we mental health advocates, we need to continue to, uh, to push the boundaries as much as we can so that more and more people understand what what some of us go through on a daily basis at times but but like i said today's a good day and it's a wonderful start to to this to this friday morning ah i'm very glad to hear that as you say it it's trying to uh, describe to somebody who doesn't have a mental health issue what it's mm. like to have one it's near impossible, and I've tried to come up with a million different ways, and, and one of the things that I use to describe how I'm feeling when I'm in a dark place is you're at a pool party, but you're underwater, you're in the shallow end, you're able to breathe because you have a mask and snorkel on, but the water's kind of cold, you're numb, you can see everybody there, you know they're there, but you can't communicate with them, it, it, you can't talk to anybody, and you're just confused and literally underwater. And that's one of the ways I've tried to describe what, what it feels like to be in that state of mind. And I don't know how else to describe it other than that. It's you're, you're underwater in a pool. You're able to breathe. You can see everybody's there. You know, you're there, but you're, you're numb. You can't communicate. You can't feel anything and you just want to get out of the water, but you can't. And I think that's, probably the most accurate way I can describe what it's like to be in that situation. I, I hear you a hundred percent. And you, you mentioned a little bit earlier that you almost broke down and there's absolutely no, there's no, it's okay to sometimes break down and it's okay to tell people that we love them. And it's okay to tell them that perhaps we're, we're shedding some, some tears of joy because not every day is that joyous. And so the way I look at it and I, I, and I feel, I understand, and I feel for you. But when I talk to people, I just tell them, I just tell them two words, trust me, trust what I'm saying. And more often than none, there's, there's listening ears to, you know, for me. And I'm lucky in that respect, but kudos for you, because, you know, as men, many of us were taught to, to be tough and to be strong as, as young boys and young men, men cry and men go through a lot of, you know, pardon the, pardon the, the, the language, but we go through a lot of shit each and every oh, yeah. day and. And it's yeah. not always easy and, and it's not always easy for men to, to speak out and to be open about, especially mental health issues. Uh, but that's why we have to continue. That's why we have to, to try and break the, the stigma as much as we can, because uh, it's important. It is. It is. I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. And I'm glad that you mentioned that particularly with regard to men, because you now these boxes that we're forced into. Mm -hmm. that you have to behave like this way and particularly for men when people come back and i think one of the toughest things that someone can tell you when you're going through a rough spot is to like to man up yes. at that point or to, to actually go ahead and attack one's masculinity simply because they're having a moment i some people i call it 
weakness, but like a more of a vulnerable moment or an honest moment even. Like this, I'm actually showing you what I'm really going through. And you know, some people are not ready to receive that or don't know what to do in the face of it. That, that's well, uh, which that's is often a point. the situation. I, I find oftentimes too, especially I'm 55 and I understand, Senator, you'll be 50 this year, correct? I'll be 50 in, <laughs> later in November, yes. Welcome to the club. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in our age group, Generation X, in our age group, it's uh, like you said, we were taught to be tough and strong. And even though my parents were very uh, forward thinking, it's okay for boys to cry. It's okay for boys to feel. You should feel. Society did not reflect that. We were pigeonholed into behaving in a certain way at all times and not showing our vulnerable side, not showing our weakness. We were allowed to have really two emotions, joy and anger. And times have changed. And I find Gen Z, the ones who are really helping me to, to <clears throat> excuse me, adjust and learn how to be expressive in what I'm feeling when I'm feeling it. Because I work with young people in their early 20s who are very forthright with, look, I'm having a really bad day. My mental health is not. And I'm like, the first time somebody said that to me, I was, oh my goodness, I can't believe you just said that. But then I realized how healthy it is to say something like that, to share that with somebody that you're going through something. Cause what I, what did I do for decades? I hit it. I hit it. I put a mask on every day and there are years of my life that were not good. I can't change the past, so I'm not going to lament over it. I can just look forward to a bright future and every day is a gift. That's why they call it the present. That's an Audrey Hepburn statement, not mine. <laughs> I have to agree. Senator, there's a lot of things that uh, I'd like to discuss or we'd like to discuss today. Hopefully that we'll have time to get through them all because I'm pretty sure I have enough questions and material for four or five hours, really, <laughs> if I wanted to. But I think I'd like to start with some basics because one of the things that we like to do on the show, as well as make sure that we're talking about mental health, is provide some political literacy. And a lot of people don't understand really, or don't have an appreciation for the Senate itself. And I was wondering if you could explain to our listeners and to our viewers, what is the work of, this, of a senator and why is it that the Senate matters? Essentially, senators have the same rights as elected members of parliament have, except that the Senate cannot introduce bills that would incur huge amounts of, of money. And so we can introduce pieces of le legislation like the government or other members of parliament can. And our main job, there, there, there'll be differing opinions on this, but the, the main job of the senator is, and the Senate as a whole, is to, is to have a second look at what piece of legislation that the government of the day has introduced, to have a second look, what they call the sober second thought, to perhaps propose amendments to improve the bill and propose some amendments going forward. And the job of, of the Senate is very important when, because it does have a second look at piece of legislation, because let's face it, members of parliament, their number one job is to get reelected. Every members of parliament, regardless of political stripe or color, their number one job is to get reelected. And so uh, sometimes they may not be as forward-thinking as, as senators who, who have a lot of experience, for example. And certainly I'm talking uh, a lot about my colleagues because I'm, I'm still rel relatively young. 
mm-hmm. even though today is, is my 15th year in the Senate. And having said that, time does fly by. But, but one thing that, that does not help the Senate is that because, it is, because Canadians are relatively not in, well-informed about the Senate, it has a bad reputation. And oftentimes, and when there's issues that happen within the Senate, then everybody calls for the abolishment of the Senate and there's no need for the Senate. And a lot of people are, are just basically named there as political favors. And that, for the most part, has been true throughout history. But there has been some level of change in the past few years in terms of trying to name more uh, independent senators. And there's always, in my view, there will always be a role uh, for the Senate of Canada, but there's always room for improvement. But like many institutions in Canada, uh, change doesn't come by very fast or very quickly. It takes uh, a lot of time. And people have been uh, asking for the abolishment of the Senate since its creation. But I always view uh, the Senate of Canada as being a more powerful institution than the the Senate in the United States, for example, because they have an elected Senate. And so in, in terms of the members uh, representing Americans in the House of Representatives or in the Senate, they're both elected bodies. Whereas in Canada, we have the elected House of Commons and we have the unelected Senate. And I think that that brings a good balance to uh, the different pieces of legislation that has been introduced throughout the years. And the second major job of a senator is is to represent the rights of minorities throughout Canada. And I was named to represent the province of Quebec. And so, you know, I have to keep into mind when piece of legislation are before us, rights of minorities in Quebec, for example, and, and French minority rights. And so those are the two main jobs. But obviously that brings a lot of, a lot of dedication hours and, and work to, to, to the Senate job. Mm-hmm. Now, I was wondering because you have been in the Senate pre and post the current prime minister, and you were appointed by former prime minister, Stephen Harper. And one of his big policy platforms was the triple E Senate that he ran on. And for many years, I think was uh, equal elected and effective were the three E's. And it ended up being a case that went all the way to the Supreme court because he was representing to Canadians that this is a change that he could make unilaterally, which was not the case. And the Supreme Court let him know. He raised a lot of money mm-hmm. on that as well, which I personally have an ethical problem with telling Canadians that you can do something unilaterally that a first-year constitutional student says you can't. <laughs> and basically, I consider that fleecing Canadians out of their money. And getting them to donate money to you like that. But then since then, we have the current prime minister that has made a change in Senate appointments and has allowed for more independent senators. I was wondering, in your experience, have you noticed a change with the reform that has been brought in with the current prime minister? And to people on the outside, a lot of people say, yeah, you hear this a lot in the media, oh, there's no change anyway, and people are still voting the same way. I know that the senators amongst themselves have organized themselves in different ways within the chamber. Have you noticed a difference in the way that the Senate operates since this reform that could have been, this is the reform that could have been done because it was within the law? Sure. I have uh, seen uh, some changes. Having said that, uh, there's the old saying that you dance with the one who brung you. 
but there, there, there's always exceptions to uh, to some principles. And uh, but that being said, I have seen a lot more, I guess, independent-minded people have been named to the Senate recently. There, there's partisanship will always exist in in a parliamentary system. The Senate is part of Parliament, as is the House of Commons, and so there's always going to be a partisan individuals, individuals within those institutions. But I have seen slowly, like when I was named, most people were named on part on a partisan basis. And when I, when I was named by the former prime minister, I thought that the best way to fit in was to be as partisan as could be, even if I didn't believe in the, the partisanship that I was exercising. But, but I think there's a lot less of that now, mm-hmm. but having, again, but having said that, and as you mentioned, the Senate, there, there are now some subgroups that have been uh, created in the Senate. Before, there used to be just the, the leader of the opposition in, in, in the Senate, mm-hmm. as well as the representative of the government and a few independents. But now there are, different, there are different groups within the Senate. And on a personal note, I have decided to, uh, to stay away from those subgroups as well. So I'm, I'm an independent, so to speak. But, but, but having said that, I get to work alongside a lot of smart and experienced people in their own domain. And just because I'm not, I'm not part of their group doesn't mean that I don't work well with, with them. As mm-hmm. a matter of fact, I've chosen to, to be a lone wolf because I can work in a pack and I can work with everybody regardless of their polit- political stripe and color which was not necessarily the case when, when I was first named, there was, mm-hmm. uh, it was more, it was more, a lot more political infighting. Mm-hmm. Now it's changed a lot since those days. That's for certain. Yes. W- within those groups, are there any of the groups now that are, that have a mix of liberal and conservative appointed senators now, or are they still, there's still like individual groups still among party lines? I think if you look at uh, the Canadian Senators Group, for example, those are made up of former Harper appointments as well as current uh, Trudeau appointments. Okay. And so I think of all the subgroups, uh, real quickly, if I if I think of the individuals in those groups, I would say that has the biggest mix of of conservative and liberal nominated individuals. Okay, I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear that there's there, that there's starting to be some mixing because this is an experiment that's going to take a lot of time because there's still a lot of people in the body that were there pre this reform and may, might not be willing or just more comfortable working in the older ways. Exactly, and also we have to give the time to those who have been named by the current prime minister under this new system. It will be interesting when eventually someday the presumably they. They will be the opposition in the Senate whenever there'll be a change in government. And that's when we're really going to see the partisanship and the individual partisanship and leanings of, of several people in the Senate because their role will, will, change, will change significantly once, once they've, they've been in, in opposition. And mm-hmm. Because since 2015, many of these individuals have, have been as part of the more on part of the government side than the opposition side. And, but, you know. Whenever that will happen, but eventually it will. So if I were to ask you, if you had a magic wand and you, like, you ruled the Senate for a week, is there anything that you have in mind, a change that you would like to see that would make it more relevant or more effective? Yes, I, I would start naming uh, Indigenous peoples, First Nations people, to more First Nations people uh, to the Senate. 
so that with, with this magic wand, uh, the Senate would be comprised entirely of indigenous peoples uh, who would have that second look over legislation passed mm -hmm. by the House of Commons who are represented mainly by people who are not indigenous peoples. And so if I had the, this magic wand and this power, that's what I would foresee to, to see the Senate as this council of elders and not looking into the politics of, of legislation and policies, but looking at what exactly needs to be said and done for the betterment of all Canadians. And, but that's obviously that's a dream. Mm -hmm. I don't think obviously that's not going to happen. But that being said, it doesn't mean that perhaps something similar could not be created in Canada that, that mm -hmm. might mirror that uh, such a notion, but uh, obviously we're, we're not there yet. Mr. Grizzly, do you have any questions as it pertains to the Senate itself? I'd just give you a little bit of background. I helped build the new Senate. I've worked in the Red Chamber. All the audiovisual services you have in that building, yeah, I was part of the team that built that. So just for the record, but um, thank you. You're welcome. It was a, a pleasure to do it, and actually, it was a privilege to be able to work. I helped with both uh, the House of Commons. I wired that and set all that up uh, in the new West Block, and spent uh, eight months working in the Senate. So it was a privilege to be able to do that. But that was the tail end of my construction career because I just couldn't do it anymore. But the question I have for you, sir. Because you're an independent, and I'm trying to frame this correctly, because you're an independent, you now have, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, a much stronger voice in the Senate. And because, like you said earlier, there's no more of the partisanship when you first got in, you were oftentimes, you said you, you voted or went a way that ran counter to what you wanted to do because you felt it was necessary to do that. But because now that you're an independent, you feel you have a stronger and louder voice in the Senate? Yes and no, because I, I, I have a, a, a more powerful voice in that I, I can use my voice for whatever issues that I deem important or on issues that I want to work on on a personal level, but less powerful because I, I am not part of any group. And by being part of a group uh, being, or being part of a political party brings a lot more strength and, and power to what an individual maybe trying to do. And by being a total independent, I lose that power. But mm -hmm. at the same time, it's up to me to, to make the connections and, and to go to people if I need their help. And as people come to me when perhaps they need, they need a vote or they need assistance on, on what they're working on. And that's how I conduct business now. I like, I'm, I'm ready and willing to work with anybody. And that, that's just my, my, my personal nature. It's always been that way. It was less so when I was when I was a partisan about a decade ago, but mm -hmm. time has gone by, and I just prefer this role as being an independent and not having the political pressures of people up above telling me how how I should vote and what I should be saying on television and or on interviews. I'm just I'm just trying to do my little quiet thing on issues that that I believe are important to me and not just important to me, but where I can lead assistance and because it's important for other people. And, uh, but, and, and that's how my, my voice, so to speak, is powerful because I can use that voice on these issues of talking about mental health and suicide mm -hmm. prevention and talking about my new bill that I introduced on alcohol labeling. Mm -hmm. So yes, my, my voice could be powerful if I use it properly, but if I don't use it properly, then it will be shut out and it will be shut out very quickly. And, and then Bill, sorry, I just, if we want to go to that bill for a sec, it's funny how in Canada where we have public health care, which is being 
eroded slowly by certain provincial premiers. But that's another issue. But the public health care w- that we've had for decades now, and there is no labeling on alcohol, but in the United States of America, you can go to a corner store and buy a can of beer and it has that warning right on it. And they've had that for 30 years, I think. So it's astonishing to me that in this country, again, healthcare is, is at the public purse and we don't have that. So I think it's a really important bill. And I am an individual who does enjoy a wine, a whiskey, and a pint of Guinness from time to time. But I think that warning is necessary and it should be there. So I commend you for that. And I think it's long overdue. Thank you for mentioning that. So yes, back in 2016, I, I was at the, at the bottom of the barrel, so to speak, and I tried to commit suicide. And that was largely in part because of, in my case, and I'm talking on a personal level, mm-hmm. it was done primarily because of alcohol. If alcohol wouldn't have been in the mix, never would I have ever contemplated or tried to do what I tried to do in January of 2016. And it was shortly thereafter where I started getting help um, and I started doing research uh, on my own about alcohol and the negative impacts of alcohol. Mm-hmm that I stumbled upon the fact that alcohol caused seven known fatal cancers. Mm-hmm. And I lost my mom to lung cancer because of, of smoking 20 years ago, almost 20 years ago to the day, as a matter of fact. And when I was made aware of the link, first and foremost, I was part of the 75% of Canadians who were not aware that there's a causal link between the consumption of alcohol and seven known fatal cancers. And so you know, it was not a, an issue of uh, reinventing the wheel here. It, mm-hmm. We did this with our tobacco products. And I just asked the question to myself, why is the alcohol industry in Canada getting a free pass? Because tobacco companies, tobacco, a class one carcinogen, need to have warning labels. The cannabis industry, they weren't even asked by Health Canada. They just did it by themselves to put warning labels on their products. But the high and mighty and very wealthy alcohol industry uh, in Canada are doing and saying everything that they can possible to ensure that there's no warning signs on their products because they know it will lead to decreased sales. And they get at parliamentarians very quickly in ensuring that, that there's delays and delays. But having said that, I use my voice and I use the position that I have to introduce this bill. And to my astonishment, last year, last spring, every leader of every subgroup in the Senate agreed that this bill should go to a Senate committee, which it has, for further study. And I've seen bills in my last 15 years experience, I've seen bills from a lot of my colleagues being parked and not seeing the Mm -hmm. light of day in a committee uh, Mm -hmm. whatsoever. And so I'm not saying that this bill will be studied this spring, but there are chances that that it, it can. And this would be a first in Canada. And I look forward to the day where we're going to have members of the alcohol industry, of the alcohol lobby, even some of the doctors that they pay to have some very some very coordinated results mm-hmm. that, that help them to start questioning them. Because their product, alcohol, is a level one carcinogen like asbestos. And tobacco, and they should not get a free pass because 80% of Canadians drink. Yes. Only 25% are aware of the causal link between cancer and alcohol. But in my view, 100% of Canadians should have access to the information that, that 
it causes this, just like cigarette smoking. Mm -hmm. And so we all know that alcohol has been uh, accepted since the beginning of time. It still is today. Uh, but I felt uh, because of my personal experience mm. and because of the health science that exists today and has existed for the last decade, uh, that there needs to be a, an honest conversation started about alcohol. And this bill, my bill only talks about the causal link between consumption and cancer. Now, not talking about all the other social aspects right. and right. the cost to our legal system, or our health system, etc. because we know that it costs us far more as a society, alcohol does, than the money it brings in through revenue, mm -hmm. uh, despite what provincial and federal governments uh, may say. They regurgitate a lot of uh, the bullet lines uh, that uh, the alcohol industry uh, have also been uh, spewing for many years. Mm -hmm. Senator, you posted recently uh, an article from PBS that was talking about alcohol uh, from the, and it related to the state of Colorado where it said that uh, there was a related death surge in Colorado with a higher mortality rate than opioids when it, occur, when it comes to alcohol. That drinking deaths in the state spiked 60% between 2018 and 2021. And in 2022, more than 1,500 people in the state of Colorado died from excessive drinking, which was a slight decline from earlier, but still 50% above pre-pandemic levels. And then in January 2023, because we reported it on our show, um, the Canadian Centre on Substance Use and Addiction released its guidance on alcohol and health, the final report. And that's when they had said that recommended trying to keep alcohol consumption to two drinks a week or less to reduce your chances of acquiring cancer. And when that happened, rather than having a response that was like, wow, we really should pay attention to that, the most vocal response that we saw in the news is, oh, here comes the nanny state again telling us that we can't have alcohol. They're coming for our burgers and they're coming for this and they're coming for that. And now they're coming for our beers too. Oh my God, that damn Trudeau. And it was the Canadian <laughs> Center for Substance Use and Addiction that was saying this. What was your, re did some of that initial reaction motivate you to push forward with this bill Actually, uh, timing-wise, it, it was great timing because I had introduced the bill in November of 2022, oh. and the guidelines came out, I believe, in January of 2023, and so, right. so the timing was uh, kind of excellent. But you preceded uh, the guidelines then? I preceded the guidelines, yes. I, I believe they were supposed to come out in early November of 2022, but I think that they decided to, to hold back a few weeks. But all to say that I, the, the timing was great. The fact that I have about five or six colleagues who are senators and are also medical doctors ha has helped the mm. conversation within the Senate. Because let's face it, this is not, this is not an easy subject matter to, uh, to deal with. It makes a lot of people uncomfortable. And this is not about the nanny state. This is, nobody's coming to take any bottles away, any alcohol away. Nobody's telling people what they should be drinking or not drinking. I, I've been, I'm going on sobriety for four years, but I'm not telling everybody should be sober. Uh, it would be a great thing. I, I, it's just not, it's just not possible. But what is possible is to have warning labels. And, and this is particularly important for First Nations people where alcohol is very is a problem in many First Nations communities. And it's in it, a lot of problems in many First Nations communities because of the 
uh, post-general effects and trauma of residential schools. And people have to cope and people turn to substances and alcohol to cope. I've been there. I, I've done that. So I understand that. But it's important that every Canadian should have the access to the information that alcohol does cause seven known fatal cancers. And this is not made up. We, we hear about uh, breast cancer in women today. Perhaps we could just start looking at alcohol. Mm -hmm. uh, we look at men. We look at a lot of uh, rates of colon cancer. Perhaps we should start looking at alcohol. And so uh, anyway, the, the data is all there. But what I found um, really interesting is that I think that by introducing the piece of legislation, that it has provided a forum for the medical community and doctors, in particular doctors who, who are basically saying, finally, we have a forum where we can start talking about the perhaps the data and, and what and what alcohol causes in, in terms of emergency room visits every day in our hospitals and, and, and taking oh, yeah. a lot of room for people who are sick. And it's just to start having a discussion that should have been held a long time ago. Perhaps we weren't aware of, of this, this vital health information that we are today. And all I'm trying to do is, is trying to give back because this is a fight against cancer. It's not a fight against the alcohol companies or whatnot. It's a fight against cancer. Now, you're mentioning this, and one of the things that I find interesting is that you're talking about this giving a venue for doctors and other scientists to talk about it. And, well, that would give the impression to me that you respect people that have expertise. And it seems that right now we're in a current trend or mood where we're looking down our nose at experts or we're being told that we shouldn't be looking at going to experts, that we should be focusing on extraordinary Canadians. This is, I guess it's my roundabout way to get to the issue of partisanship and the way that politics has changed today. The political discourse. Now, politics is meant to be adversarial. The House of Commons, the Senate, like you said, is designed for partisanship. It's meant to be, I have my position, you have yours, we fight it out, we duke it out. You know, there have always been insults. If you go back and read the answer back from the days of John A. Macdonald and whatnot, the, the things that people said about people back then, not nice, no. <laughs> right? But and there Sir seems, John A. liked to imbibe, too. Yes, but there is a, a trend where experts are out to get us. They're out there to tell us how to live our lives. They're there to take away our freedom. And with this bill, clearly it seems that you do not believe that. I'm wondering if you could tell us from your perspective what you think about the current political discourse and particularly about the rejection of expertise. First and foremost, I think the rejection of, of experts is, is a little bit far-fetched and crazy. I think it's, it's a little bit dangerous, but having said that, I think with social media, I think everyone is an expert today. Everybody seems to, to believe that they have ready access to information. And just because they read it somewhere that it makes them the experts, but there's a lot of things that make people experts going to school and getting degrees and lived experience make, make people experts and people's hard work through, throughout the years and decades make them experts. But I'm not going to talk too much about the, the politics today. I think I'm, I've recused myself from that, except to say, however, that in terms of an observation, I feel that perhaps the traditional liberal party has gone a little bit more to the left 
and the traditional conservative party has gone a little bit more to the right. That's, that's what I'm sensing engaging in terms of the discussions and what I see on social media and the discussions I have with, uh, with individuals on a day-to-day basis as well. I don't know if that is good for the country or bad for the country. I know that it causes a lot more, obviously it causes a lot more divisions. And uh, when you cause divisions, there's a lot more anger. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what I think uh, we are seeing. And because uh, like you guys, I lived in a time where perhaps a conservative voter would have voted liberal, vice versa. Right. And I'm seeing a little bit less of that now. And perhaps perhaps the next election will be uh, will be determining factor in in seeing what I believe is needed. And I think that we need more of a centrist party. The Canadians are, are centrist, for the most part, cent- mm-hmm. centrist people. And Canadian history have shown us that that's how Canadians are, by and large. But I think the next election will be certainly in Canada, an election between the right and the left. Mm-hmm. There, there's also a possibility that, you know, who knows, maybe the NDP and the Liberals will merge there were talks about that 20 years ago that never happened. And you, if you talk to the political insiders within those parties, they'll tell you absolutely that's not going to happen. But as I see the Conservative Party moving a little bit more to the right, and I've, like I said, I've seen the Liberal Party move more to the left, I don't think that it's inconceivable that this may happen before, before the next election, but it, it may not as well. And that's why I stay out of uh, having political discussions because anything could happen in politics and uh, mm-hmm. no, nobody wants to hear a, a senator's voice on partisan politics. But, uh, but I'll keep it at that. I strongly feel that political parties are going more polar opposites, perhaps because they have seen that it works in the United States. Whether we like it or not, they have seen that it works. And some of this perhaps have, has come into Canada. But, uh, but like I said, we'll see after the next federal election to see what the voter turnout will be, what the results will be. I think at that time, we will, we will certainly see if, if there will be a need for a, a more centrist party at that time. But that's my, my, in my 15-year experience, that's what I've, I'm seeing and that's what I'm sensing today. Mm-hmm. Well, on the show, we, live, we believe in putting our biases on the tables. I am a big fan of the messy middle. <laughs> Always have been. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're very centrist, left-leaning centrist. And, and cards are on the table, but uh, we long for the days of a Joe Clark progressive conservative party, even a Brian Mulroney progressive conservative party. Although I still have issues with his cancellation of the vaccination being created in Canada and his privatization of Air Canada, but that's neither here nor there. He was still a progressive and he, Brian Mulroney was our environmental prime minister. The acid rain agreement he had with George W or no, sorry, George senior, not W. Like he was an environmentalist, that's a progressive conservative. And now all of a sudden we've got conservatives that don't want anything to do with the environment. And I'm like, we only have one planet guys. Can we get together on this? Can we be stewards of the land and make sure that there's a land for our children and our grandchildren and our great grandchildren? Because if we don't do something, there's not going to be a planet for us to live on. It's the sad reality. And the other sad reality is that the majority of, in the majority of years since Confederation, it has been the Liberal Party who has formed government. It's true. And so the job of the opposition party is to oppose. So whatever the government of the day is proposing, is doing, the job of the opposition is, is simply to oppose, whether that makes sense or not. 
But uh, politics has, has never made sense. Uh, yeah. Politics, uh, <laughs> politics. We we tr- we drum roll on the the sentiments of, of voters. Mm-hmm. That that's how people are. That's how we we get to voters. It's uh, playing on people's hearts and and wallets. So that's the unfortunate reality. But I I like to think that within the current Conservative Party of Canada, that there are some uh, level heads that uh, that feel that climate change uh, is important, but. Having been in a political party, uh, sometimes even when you have the best ideas, you get shut out because that's mm. what the party decides. And, yeah. and that, that's the unfortunate part of politics. You can have the most well-meaning people with the best ideas, but if it doesn't fit the narrative and the fray of the current government of the day, then your idea is going to stay in, it'll stay in the back benches. And that's just the other sad reality of politics. Mm-hmm. I'd like to ask you, since we've got on the the subject of the environment, a bit about your career pre-Senate, because you had some military service and you were also with the Congress of Aboriginal Peoples. Now, as Canadians, most of us have heard, for example, of the FN or the ITK or the Métis National Council, but a lot of us are not familiar with the Congress of Aboriginal Peoples. We don't hear about it as much as the other organizations. Could you explain to our viewers what that organization is and where its place is in the whole spectrum? Sure. In Canada, there are five national Indigenous organizations. You have the Assembly of First Nations, who represent the chiefs across Canada. You have the Inuit Tepperit Kanatami, who represent the Inuit. You have the Congress of Aboriginal Peoples that represents First Nations people, Métis people living off-reserve throughout Canada. You have Uh the Native Women's Association of Canada who represent their women members within the organization. And you have the Métis National Council. Now, the reason why you hear more about the Assembly of First Nations, for example, that's because it is the federal government that handpicks which organization that they work more closely together. And historically, it's been the Assembly of First Nations. Uh, and and another fact as well, the Congress of Aboriginal Peoples has been has been in existence for as long as the Assembly of First Nations, formerly the National Indian Brotherhood, but okay. the Congress was called the Native Council of Canada, and they I were there to end. represent those who weren't status and those living off reserve throughout the seventies and eighties, and it was in the eighties that the Congress changed their name, and that's where you had a split between what is now the Congress for Aboriginal Peoples and the Métis National Council, because the Métis National Council represent Métis people living west of Western Ontario to British Columbia. Okay. The Congress of Aboriginal Peoples is more made up of organizations, Quebec East. And so it was in the mid eighties that there was a split between the two organizations because the word Métis was included in the Constitution of Canada in 1982. Right. And so that's why there were individuals at that time that saw the potential for funding and representation more in Western Canada on the Métis front. And so that's why there was a split. But it has always been the practice of the federal government, both liberal and conservatives, to deal more with the Assembly of First Nations because it has been the policy of the federal government to limit its jurisdiction over all Indigenous peoples. And so they basically fund these organizations and they also handpick who they work more closely with together. 
And so that is why my former organization, the Congress of Aboriginal Peoples, were more prominent when, when Stephen Harper was in opposition and then became prime minister in 2006 in the history of the organization. So that's why most times you'll hear more about the Assembly of First Nations because governments want to deal more with that organization as opposed to organizations which would expand their jurisdiction, which the government does not want. Mm. Not saying it's right. We've always said it's wrong, but mm. that's what they do. Okay. Okay. Now, your position with regard to the Indian Act is that it should be replaced with something better. What would, what are you, not necessarily maybe you personally, but what are you hearing on the ground would be a better option than what it is that we have now? For the last 20 years in particular, and I've been at this for 24 years now, but the last 20, 20 years in particular, there, there hasn't been much of an appetite to replace the Indian Act because that's what people know. That's what people are accustomed to. And every attempt that has been made to replace the Indian Act throughout the years has been met with huge resistance because a lot of what has been proposed in, in, in the past is not, it was not something to build upon the Indian Act. It was something to replace it completely and was a, a, a dissolution of rights and responsibilities on the behalf of, of First Nations. And so what I've always said, and this came out of the Royal Commission on, on Aboriginal Peoples back in, in 1996, I believe, we have to reconstitute our true historical First Nations. And what I mean by that is that, for example, in, in Quebec, there are nine Algonquin communities. So all these nine communities are getting all their pockets of money for economic development, for housing, for education, health, etc., and all are exercising their own jurisdiction over their small reserved lands. And, and what RCAP, the Royal Commission, had proposed, and what I've always supported is, why don't we reestablish the Algonquin Nation as one and have the Algonquin Nation decide on behalf of the Algonquin people in those nine different communities, mm -hmm. whatever jurisdiction that they have over their own affairs? Why should the provincial governments and federal governments still have jurisdiction over the affairs that touch First Nations people in their lands? Mm. And the answer to that is that it's still in the Constitution under Section 9124 that gives uh, exclusive ju jurisdiction to the federal government to pass laws for Indians and lands reserved for Indians. And so they have the exclusive jurisdiction. And they have no appetite to, to offload this jurisdiction to First Nations people. They have never suggested it. Mm. And, and the question has always been, why not? I think as an Indigenous person who has been in both mainstream and Indigenous politics for the last 24 years, having both liberal and conservative governments, that is the policy of the federal government to maintain its control over us. Yeah. It's that simple. We may not like to hear it. We may not like to say it, but it's a fact. It's an unwritten fact or else they would be devolving. They would be giving away this jurisdiction to First Nations people on, to, to make decisions and laws on behalf of their own people. But, but again, we're not there yet. And it's just mind-boggling that, that we still have this Indian Act because the Indian Act, which is a law in Canada, is the most racist piece of legislation. Agreed. Mm -hmm. 
in the world, gentlemen. Yeah. Yeah. And we still have it. And the unfortunate thing is that there are many leaders across the country who are not speaking about eliminating the Indian Act because, like I said, that's all they know. That's all they're accustomed to. And there's a lot of fear that if ever that were to be replaced, that more and further rights um, would be taken away from First Nations people. And so going forward, there's also an onus and responsibility on behalf of First Nations people to reconstitute those nations and to come up to the federal government and say, okay, we got our stuff together. We got our shit together. Now we're ready. Right. We are the Algonquin nation. Now we're not just Kibigan Zibi or Barrier Lake. We are the Algonquin nation, ready and willing to sit down, negotiate, and, and start having jurisdiction over our affairs. So it wouldn't be almost like ironically having a confederation of those nine different places and then operating as a nation. Just like it was before the, the, the arrival of Europeans and the imposition of the Indian Act and, and the Canadian Constitution. That's how nations practiced their everyday lives, exercised mm -hmm. their jurisdiction over their own. Uh, and so... It's coming back to old ways, but it's coming back to old ways in a contemporary, modern way where people, like, I don't want to use the word municipalities because it scares people, but there's nothing wrong with, with using that word, in my view, because your municipalities exercise jurisdiction over their own fields of jurisdiction. And then, mm -hmm. so there's nothing wrong with that. That's the way it should be for, uh, for First Nations uh, communities as well, and not just areas of jurisdiction that the federal government allows you to have control over or mm -hmm. joint control over. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I'm glad that you mentioned that because it's like a two-part question is the current government has had a particular focus with reconciliation. And very recently, we've seen uh, a greater devolution of powers to the territory of Nunavut. I'm wondering if you can give us your sense of the particular act of devolution to Nunavut, is this a good thing? I know it's still limited, but is this a good step? And have the actions that have been taken in the name of reconciliation so far, because I know a lot of them have been more symbolic than anything else, but there seems to be a greater buy-in from the Canadian public than there was before, at least that I remember, that these are things that should be done. Are you noticing a tangible change? Has there been some improvement? Are we on a better path, even though we're like so far yet from where we need to be? First and foremost, in terms of uh, the development of jurisdiction, I think it's always a good step. It's always a, a good thing when people who have been asking for greater control over their own affairs actually get it. Now, they may not have gotten everything that they wanted out of that deal, but it's something. And something is always something that you can build upon. I think it's right. a great thing. In terms of this whole discussion about reconciliation, I think that the current government is doing um, a, a huge mistake. Uh, and I think that because uh, several years ago, uh, the federal government, uh, and, and when I say the federal government, both liberal and conservative, right. um, First of all, they, they denied the fact, uh, the many facts about residential schools, uh, the mass graves. For many decades, my father, when he was growing up, the, the governments were completely denying these facts, that, that th these things were taking place. And when I started working for the Department of Indian Affairs as a summer student in 1999, and shortly thereafter, 
I started reading statements of claims from indigenous peoples that went to residential schools. And my job was to take one pile and of statements of claims and put one pile in, I think I believe them. And here's another pile. There may be questions. I'm, I was a summer student, an indigenous Algonquin summer student, and I'm just doing my job. But this is the first time that I was made aware that, that these issues took place in, in Canada. Mm. And so let's just fast forward now. In, in, in 2008, there was a, the residential school apology from the former prime minister which again was not the end-all be-all, but was a great first step. And I, I had the opportunity to witness it in the House of Commons when that took place. And I was able to speak in the House of Commons at that time as well. But I think that what the government is doing is they're forgetting a step. And we can't just go to truth and the truth part and go to reconciliation. There needs to be reparations done. And when, when just think about it, just think about, let's say your kids, are taken away by, by the government of the day. There's nothing you could do about it. They're, they're thrown into a truck, a van, and they're gone for months and months at a time. They're gone to school because they're supposed to be learning, right? Learning. A lot of these kids were physically, mentally, sexually abused. And now these kids come out of these schools and we just leave them with absolutely nothing. Where are the resources where these people are going to get help? Because if anyone has just a tiny little ounce of a heart in them, we'll know that these people have gone through hell. Mm -hmm. And they mm -hmm. can't get back because there's no help. And the government, may, they, they may sound as if they're, they're all in it. And here's the truth. And we admitted to it. And here's what we're doing. But let's reconcile. Let, let, let's reconcile. You, you have to repair because... There's a lot of people who came out of those schools who weren't the best individuals, not because of their fault, but weren't the best individuals to cope with life, uh, didn't become the best parents. And, and that feeds to another generation. Unless you break the cycle, you know, this is fed to generation after generation. And so when you set the bar very high, this prime minister has, it, 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 it's set up for for unfortunate circumstances. I agree wholeheartedly that a lot, that he has done a lot in terms of the conversation. I think that he's opened up the door for more Canadians to be not only more knowledgeable, but more caring about the plight of Indigenous peoples. Wholeheartedly, I firmly believe he has done that. He has opened that door. But at the same time, I think that a lot of things that he has done are more symbolic than things that will change the actual life of an Indigenous person living in Kitty Gonzivi, for example. But when you open the door and sometimes when you set the bar that high, people uh, have to try and attain that bar. If they don't, then they'll be quickly called out on it. But, uh, but as with anything, time will tell. I think, like I said, I think that uh, he certainly opened the door wide open to have those greater conversations because those certainly didn't exist 20 years ago. To his credit, I think time will tell and perhaps in another 10 to 20 years will be more telling in terms of what actually this opening up this, this initial door will have done. But there are so many more things to do. And uh, But what that will entail, who knows? But all I have to say is that the issues that existed 20 years ago in terms of poor socioeconomic conditions, 
still here have not mm-hmm. changed and yeah. the reason they have not changed is because first nations leadership change they're elected every two years under the indian act some four if they opted out of it so that leadership change members of parliament they change mm-hmm. cabinet faces change mm-hmm. ministers of indian affairs change everybody in the system changes very quickly and people often forget but what does not change is the bureaucracy what does not change is the actual policy of the government of canada which canadians aren't aware of because mm. it exists solely in the bureaucracy of indian affairs it's unwritten but as indigenous people and as somebody who's been there for more than 20 years and have looked at different members of parliament different ministers different political parties leading our country the policy is the exact same it's mm. to limit the jurisdiction it's to limit the financial burden of canada over indigenous peoples that's why they still control who is a status indian in canada mm. who is not mm. and i've said this time and again but it's easier and it's faster to get a passport in canada you can get one in 48 hours but to get a status card it takes between 6 months and 2 years and lo and behold my two children i have six children but my two youngest eight and five they've been waiting 3 years for their status card oh come on that's ridiculous and that my friends is and you're a senator the policy of the government of canada is to limit the status population see that blows my mind because you're a senator and is there anybody under the sun in this country that does not know that you yeah <laughs> I mean, this one should be a no brainer you you would be surprised that and perhaps it's because i've i've been in in both mainstream and 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 indigenous politics for 24 years but you would be surprised that at, at i guess the lack of knowledge mm-hmm. about about issues pertaining to indian indian affairs some of my colleagues have made mistakes in mm-hmm. in, in in words that they've used and speeches that it, that they've made because they've been fed lines by the federal government for way too long and even in indian affairs we have to break down some barriers just to get some common sense notions going because the majority of canadians aren't aware of of the inner uh, workings of indian affairs and and if they did i i think they would have a problem with it but politicians tend to stay away from indian affairs because there's not too much of an interest in it no it's almost like what you said near the beginning about having the senate be almost like a council of elders of the senate was fully indigenous there would at least be one body there that would be looking at this project over the long term looking at a long term so that when faces change and what not we're not starting back from zero all over again there wouldn't have be a need for those five indigenous organizations that uh, that i mentioned earlier if we were to have such a body uh where we would have indigenous peoples having uh having that type of uh, of mandate but uh, like i said it's just mind-boggling to me that the federal government funds these organizations and if these organizations decide not to play ball with them then they're going to pay they're going to suffer <laughs> and i can say that because i was part of one of those organizations and uh, i was part of that system so i know how it works obviously the roadblocks are put up intentionally elaine's comment here I ran into roadblocks getting status years ago because I didn't know ancestors names in original language only knew the anglicized names. 
that is a, an intentional roadblock. Mm-hmm. And it's mind blowing to me. My, my nephews are Métis. My brother-in-law, uh, it took him years to get his card. Years. And here's the best part. He works on Parliament Hill. He works for the PCO. And it took him years to get his status card. And, it's, and you're talking about your children. And, and oh, my God. How is this even a thing? It's 2024. Can we not get our shit together, Canada? Like, this is just mind-blowing to me. And this is not the first time I've heard this. And it's still, I'm still exasperated at the idea that this just continues to go on. The roadblocks are there. They're there intentionally. It's to keep, it's to keep us down. And I say us, I'm not part of the community, obviously. I'm like a super white guy. But it's to keep people down, keep people in their place. Keep them under the thumb, if you will. Come on, we, this can't stand anymore. It's got to change. It has to, because it's wrong on so many levels. It is wrong on so many levels, but like I said, the more things change, the more they stay the same, because it's been 20 years and I still see the same problems. And it's not difficult for me to even go back 40 years, same, same issue, 60 years. It was the same issue. And This issue will remain for as long as Canadians are kept in the dark about it. Indigenous peoples or affairs have never been on a ballot question, has never been a ballot question, Mm -hmm. and it never will be. And it's going to take that type of level of commitment and advocacy uh, on behalf of Indigenous peoples to uh, to force the hand of whoever the the government will be in the future, because it's just nonsensical that it's still a government that decides who's Indian and who's not in this country. <laughs> and they fund the organizations that they fund the organizations. And so what happens if the organization completely does not support whatever the government is trying to do? Then do they get their funding withheld? Yes, they do. It has happened. Mm-hmm. But, but the majority of Canadians don't care about this because they don't know. And, and they're just, they've just been fed the lines that, you know, Indians are just a bunch of drunks and this and that and freeloaders. And it's just crazy. What even, even as a senator, the things that I hear from sometimes everyday Canadians, you guys are lucky you don't pay taxes. Oh, really? Really? I pay taxes. Yeah. I pay that. Mm-hmm. People who live on the reserve may not pay taxes, but at the same time, they don't own their land. Yeah. Did you know that? Did mm-hmm. you know that they don't own their land? Because it's federal crown lands reserved for them. That's why we call them reserves. Because it's lands reserved for them. They don't own that land. That's why they don't pay taxes. Just like any other crown lands. And so that's the reason, for example, that people living on reserve don't pay taxes. They don't own their land. Are they that lucky? (laughs) Yeah. And, And that was the other thing when it came to the whole reserve system. It was like, oh, you can farm over here on this rocky outcrop where you can't grow crops. Oh, you can hunt, but there's no forest and there's no animals in this rocky outcrop in the middle of no. We all know what was done and why it was done. And it's time for reparations. How to make the reparations? I don't know. I'm just a dumb middle-aged white guy. I don't know how to make the reparations, but they need to be made. How do we go about doing it? It's going to take a long time. It's going to be incremental. It's going to take a lot of politicians working together, bipartisanship, to solve the problems that we, guys who look like me, created. Now, was I a part of it? No, man, I pay to live here. <laughs> I, 
I'm not, I'm working class. I'm not even part of the middle class. So do I have any solutions? No, but tell me how I can help. What can I do? I don't know what can I, what I can do other than lobby my member of parliament and my uh, member of provincial parliament to say, come on, we got to do something here. Write the letters, send them in, make sure that your voice gets heard, that you want change because we need it. Because what has been done for too long and it just continues and in, uh, until we decide to collectively make the change, it won't get made. I hear you. Uh, like I said, I, you know, I was dealing with some of these issues 20 years ago. And if something is not done today or very soon, these same issues will exist 20 years from now. Exactly. 40 years from now, they, they will. Because like I said, change, faces come and go. When dealing with Indian affairs, politicians, their faces come and go. But the bureaucracy stays constant. They stay there. And, and, and that's really the institution. When we're talking about the Indian Affairs Institution, that in itself is an institution. Yeah. Are there people, are there ministers of Asian affairs? No. Muslim no. affairs? Nope. No, but we still have them for Indian affairs, but we can't call them Indians anymore. We have to call them indigenous, which dilutes the word. Because when you say somebody is indigenous, you don't know if they're Inuit, Métis, or First right. Nations. Right. And so that's why I, you know, when I use the word, I, I mean everyone. But when I'm talking about First Nations people, I use First Nations because it's right. it, because the relationship between First Nations and the Crown, the government, yes. is a bit more important than the ones with Métis. Mm -hmm. Yep. <laughs> yep. And in the Constitution, they're spelt out differently. There's yes. actually a section for each of the three specific groups. In terms of the definition, yes, in Section yes. 35, it, it says that not the Indigenous peoples. It says that the Aboriginal peoples of Canada includes. The mm -hmm. Indian, Inuit, and Métis. Mm -hmm. and, and the mistake that many Canadians make is that the definition says Indian, Inuit, and Métis. So it's the Assembly of First Nations, the Inuit, and the Métis, and the MNC yeah. that represents those people. But that's historically not true either. Right. There are five organizations that are funded by the federal government and recognized by the federal government. But unfortunately, it's the same government who pick, picks and chooses which Indians they're going to work with. Yep. Now, Mr. Grizzly asked to mention something, and it's something uh, I'd like to pick up on. For people like us and our viewers and our listeners, what can we do to push that ball forward? If, if we've bought in like this and we believe that this needs to be fixed, what can we do? Again, it, it was mentioned, it's, it's, it's writing uh, a member of parliament, uh, regardless of what their color and stripe is, because... We all need each other in this life. You know? Yes, we do. Uh, right now, we have a liberal government. They need the opposition to be strong, to be able to do things. You know, we, we all need each other. And so that's why it's, it, it, it might be a tedious exercise. It might be uh, what some people call it. Oh, it does, it's an exercise that uh, doesn't bring anything. But it does. If you put pressure uh, on your member of parliament to, to do things, uh, then it requires them to answer you <laughs> if you write them. Uh, and it will require them to take a stand if you ask for it. Uh, and so the more and more people are flooded with these letters uh, and so that they can take their own caucuses when they meet and say, okay, we're getting an influx of letters. Okay, we need to do this on this. Then at least perhaps the parties become more educated and involved in policymaking. Because right now, if I look at, at the currencies for people, the major political parties, there's not much going on there. And so we need to get these political parties to have clear policies 
in the future that that will actually change the lives of First Nations people and will not just be symbolic because that's what we've been more accustomed to in, in the past several years. So writing your members of parliament, that's basically the only way in terms of non-Indigenous participation. That, that's really the only way that, effective way that I can see. We could always try and get involved with organization and trying to work in terms of what they're trying to do as well. But the members of parliament, that, that's key. That's, if you, if people get, I used to be part of a political party and my participation in that party at least gave me a little bit of power to, to have a few bullet lines into their actual policy. But it takes a long time and it's done at a snail's pace. Incrementally, right? It's yeah. like you say, snail's pace, baby steps. Yeah. Senator, baby steps can take you a long way. Yeah. It's true. Indeed, yeah. yeah. Once, once you pile them up. Yep. Add them all together. The, the journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. Exactly. Senator, if we may get a little more personal, because you're very candid about things that you've been through in personal struggles. Yes. And it's almost like your career as a senator can be defined as pre-2016 and post-2016. And a lot of, I'm reading the comments here, and it's one of the reasons that we wanted to have you on the show, is you've been through a lot of things that in a regular political career, if you had to show up for a mandate every four years, you probably would not be in parliament now because you have the benefit of being a senator and it's an appointment for an extended period of time. You've had time to grow in the position and you've been in the public eye for a long time and people have gotten to see your journey, the good, the bad, and the ugly. We have viewers and listeners. We had a note from one of our listeners before that you came on that said, if you have Senator Brazo on, I really want to be part of this. He's one of the people who helped me through my recent personal crisis, and I'd love the chance to talk to him. He's been where I was, and his advocacy has been of tremendous help personally. There are people that have stared into the abyss not all of them have come out the other side. But those of us, those of them who are still with us, identify with you in many ways. And they are very impressed with where you are now compared to where you have been. And I'm wondering, in that I don't know this personally. I'm hardwired for optimism. But when you are looking at the abyss, and there's a lot of things that happened, right? There was the Senate expense scandal, and you seem to have been particularly singled out. I wonder. I remember why. when that was happening, because there was three senators that were singled out. There was Senator Wallen, then there was Senator Duffy, and there was there was you, and Senator Wallen, and we didn't hear much of Senator Duffy had a trial, but you particularly were singled out. You were, I think, ejected from the Senate, I think, for about a year. And three, three years, three years, that's true. And you did not, Senator Duffy or Senator Wallen, have a past with a broadcasting career. And 
tons of opportunity to earn some money and bank some money. You had to go out and hustle during those three years. And there just seemed to be a pylon. Was your, looking back now, because do you think that your experience being in the Senate at that time was contributed more to pushing you towards that brink than it would have had you not been a senator? Thank you for the question. And that's a, that's a complicated question. It's actually hard to answer. I'm not sure. All, all I can say is that I don't, I don't regret anything. Well, there's my dog. Sorry about that. That's okay. We love dogs. Yeah. So I don't regret anything about what happened because it led me to being where I am today. Mm -hmm. uh, and obviously I'm in a much better, better spot. But having said that, I certainly learned a lot from, from what, what took place, what happened to me. I don't come from a very rich background, very rich family. <laughs> you know, I come from Manawaki, Quebec. Uh, my parents were, were just hard workers, but uh, we certainly don't come from, from a family with, with a lot of money and we had to work. For, for what we had and the same hold true the same holds true for for me today I thank and I count my lucky stars each and every morning even though it's not a may not be a joyous morning but every morning is is more joyous than than some of the ones that I saw at some point in my life but I, I just took everything that happened to me in a negative light going through the justice system I the whole nine yards it wasn't necessarily easy I made some bad personal decisions as well which I owned up to I took responsibility for and and I still am, but I, I would be lying if I regretted anything that I ever did, because like I said, if I had not went through some of the things that I did go through, I might not be the person that I am today. But having said that, it, it hurt that I got, that I got charged by the Senate uh, mm -hmm. because whether you, whether people like me or don't like me, irregardless, but I think people know that when fairness is exercised and when it's not, and I took it very hard to be charged with what the Senate, what the Senate said that I did, because I did not do anything that they said. As a matter of fact, I asked permission to the Senate administration if I could do, if I could get reimbursed for my secondary housing. And they had told me yes. And for a year I was, I was claiming secondary residence, which I was told I could do. And then all of a sudden, because of politics and partisan politics, I was essentially thrown under the bus. And But that being said, I count my lucky stars because I've been at this long enough to know that there's a lot of people who have been thrown under a political bus and they have not made it back. And so uh, you're quite right. I, if I would have been in an elected position, I probably wouldn't have that job anymore. So I do count my lucky stars. But I, that being said, I did pay a, a, a hefty price that 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 no other people have to pay because of this public light. I, know mm -hmm. I was in the public light. My, my personal life was in the public light and that's not always easy. And a lot of people will say, yeah, that comes with the territory. Uh, yeah, that comes with the territory. But I think in my case, limits were, were surpassed. I think that some reporters back in the day went, went above and beyond what they should have done, even on a moral level, harassing my, my 80 year old dad at the time or 75 year old dad at the time. It's not cool. It's not okay. But I wouldn't change anything because I'm in a much better place today. I'm trying to use my position the way I should have used it at the beginning. But that being said, I was named at a very young age. Some people asked me if I was named too young. And 
I always respond by saying, yeah, perhaps. Mm -hmm. But there's perhaps the other part which people don't know. And perhaps it was the Senate at the time that wasn't ready to receive me. And so there's mm -hmm. two ways of looking at it. And so I've just, I've just taken all, all my personal experience and I'm just trying to, uh, to do the job as best as I can. I've been dealing with a lot of health issues since 2016, some pretty serious health issues. Mm -hmm. When, when I'm feeling I'm up to par, I'm, I'm at work, but unfortunately I've missed, I've missed a lot of time because of the health issues, but, but today we're still good to go. And when we're good to go, we got to make, got to try to make the best of it. And that's what I try to do on a daily basis. I can identify with what you're saying to, to a much lesser degree. Like I try and form my thoughts here. Everything I've done in my past brought me to where I am today. So I wouldn't change it because I wouldn't be this person that sits here in front of you today. But I have an inkling of what it's like to be placed in the spotlight and have your whole life picked apart. A, a much smaller degree, of course. And it's not easy. And, and I was getting death threats and people telling me they were going to bring harm to my person because I stood up for my friends and neighbors. It wasn't easy, but I don't regret it. I've had some people say, you've made it your whole identity. No, I'm owning what I did. It's not my identity. I did it. I don't regret it. I have to move forward in my life. I can really identify with what you're talking about, how, yes, I made a lot of mistakes along the way, but regrets, not really. It, it made me who I am today, sir. I, I completely, and we've interacted on Twitter a couple of times and you've always been so kind to me in, in, in your response. And each and every time it's, this is a guy who has journeyed and gone through hell and back and come out the other side, smiling and happy and, and looking forward to the next new day. And that gives hope to a lot of people. Somebody like me, who's I've stared into the abyss, not going to lie, I have. Thankfully, I, I didn't go that route, uh, and I'm still here. But those dark thoughts, they, they never leave me. They never leave me. They're just random thoughts. You'll be sitting there watching a hockey game with my, my partner, and all of a sudden, this thought just comes into my head from nowhere that says, go harm yourself. I don't act on them and, and choosing not to act on them is, is, is just that it's a choice, but I know what it's like to stare into the abyss and I know how difficult it is to step back from the edge and change your life for the better. Me starting medication on the best possible time on earth, February 28th, 2020, just a month before the whole planet shut down, I was at my darkest period in my life. Every day was a struggle. Every single day, I did not want to live here. I didn't want to live anymore. Every day. And I looked 15 years older then than I do now because of the stress of the depression and the darkness and the cloud that hung over my head. And I spoke to a friend of mine who was a, a family physician, and, and she told me, no, I'm on this medication, and I think without it, I don't know if I could cope right now. I think you should take it too. And I needed to hear that from A, a physician, but B, from somebody I know and love and trust. Because I had tried medication in the 90s and it made me suicidal. I didn't follow through on it, obviously, because I'm still here. But I was reluctant to go back to medication. And what she said to me was, if you take it and the side effects are too extreme, you simply 
wean yourself off of it, and everything will go back to how it is right now. That was the moment where I said, that's it. The next day, I called my doctor. I made an appointment. I went in to see him. He sent me up with a script. And I started on this journey of healing. And it's, it'll be four years in, in a month. And I'm never looking back. I'm only looking forward. Good for you. Thank you. Because you know, we're not always, not everybody's always lucky as, as perhaps we have been. And exactly. It doesn't matter if you've got a Senate job or it doesn't matter what job that you have. It, it, mental health issues could hit anybody. And I just want to add, in, in terms of men's mental health as well, last year, uh, there's a Senate committee that, uh, that studied the, uh, frame, the federal government's framework on suicide prevention. And... To make a long story short, we had witnesses that came and experts that came before this, this committee to talk about how we could best develop policies for suicide prevention. And to my surprise, because 75% of suicides are, are done by men. And several years ago, I did an exercise, my office did an exercise where we reached out to every provincial government asking them what, what services they offered for mental health related issues. And, and in terms of what exists for women, and men, and it's not to make a, it's not to, it's not a us versus them kind of thing, but there, there are not too many programs and services that are out there for men dealing with mental health issues. And so I had proposed because none of the experts proposed that, well, perhaps we should, we should have a, a specific focus, gender-based analysis focus on men when dealing mm -hmm. in suicide prevention, because mm -hmm. three out of every four suicides are committed by men yet, yet we're not giving this focus to men because Right. Why? Because are we continuing this crap that we're supposed to be built up and we're supposed to, to hold everything in and then react smoothly when, when things go astray? No, that's not the, the, the way things work. And so I was happy that for the first time in, in Canadian history that we have a, a GBA, but a lens on men for a change. Mm -hmm. Because if, we're, if we want to reduce the number of suicides, let's start focusing on men to reduce it. And the same applies with First Nations people and Inuit communities where they Inuit, some Inuit communities, which is home to some of the highest suicide rates in the world, by the way, but they could go up 25, 27% compared to non-Indigenous peoples. Yet, yet there are very few programs uh, and assistance and help to help Inuit people and communities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And same with First Nations. And so if there's no help, how, how are we going to, how are people going to get out of these situations? And like I said, I was a lucky one. I, mm -hmm. because I, I think on a personal level, I was ready uh, for the change. I wanted it. I didn't want to go back to the bottom of the, the barrel again. And that's why the, the biggest decision that I made in my life, speaking for myself personally, obviously, is that I quit drinking. It was at the beginning of the pandemic. It was on March 27th, 2020. I saw myself, things that shut down. I'm like, oh, I'm going back to where I was once and I don't want it anymore. And that's what did it for me. And I've never, I've never looked to look back since. But having said that, doesn't mean that I'm well every day. Doesn't mean that I'm happy every day. Doesn't mean that just because, just because I quit drinking that, that life is that much better. Yes, it is. But there are still some problems and it's not just, uh, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter. What your background is, doesn't matter color of your skin, doesn't matter how much money you have. Mental health issues can hit you at any time. And sometimes when, even when you're not seeing it coming. Yes. And if you don't see it coming, that's where it's too late. Mm -hmm. For many men, 
if they see it coming, they do something to to change it sometimes. But uh, like I said, this is why we have to speak out more and more. We have to break down those barriers and uh, the stigma will always will always exist as long as we let it. And uh, we shouldn't. Do you, do you know that the, the amongst, sorry, just give me a second here, Mr. Beaver, amongst the um, uh, the highest rate of suicide uh, related to a particular uh, field of employment or field of work is in the construction and trades, the highest. And in, there, there's an initiative that started out in the UK by a gentleman, his name, first name is Fred, I can't remember his last name. He has a YouTube channel called the B1M and it's about construction. And he started to talk to young men in the trades to get them to open up about what they're feeling. Because let's face it, most men have nobody to talk to when they're hurting. There was a TikTok series about a year or two ago where a young woman said, when you're feeling at your lowest point, who do you talk to? And the response was overwhelmingly nobody. And these are young men on TikTok, not guys my age, guys in their 20s, early 30s. They have nowhere to go. They have no one to talk to. We got to change that. Back in my day, if, if I was having trouble with anything and if I happened to tell a friend, it was, hey, let, let's go drinking. Yeah. That we'll was, forget yeah. about it. Come on, yeah. let's go out drinking. And oh, but neither of us knew that once I got back home and the fun was over, that then I became more depressed and I felt mm -hmm. more badly about myself. And the situation had worsened. And then you wake up the next morning and it's just that, it's just that, uh, it's just the day, re the bad day, it, it restarts it's again. And yeah. it's just a, uh, bad situation to be in senator but two moments when you were at the darkest moment and when you made that decision to stop drinking are there things from your culture teachings medicines people that you talked to that were able uh, to contribute to you coming but getting to where you are today Yes, the beginning of the pandemic, just for no other particular reason except for personal ones or spiritual ones, I started uh, smudging at home, inside the home, outside the home. I just started every day, every morning, every afternoon, so twice a day, sunrise and sunset, I would smudge. And I had, uh, actually, I mentioned that I quit drinking on the 27th of March earlier, but uh, it was on the 29th of March, but on, I had started smudging on the 27th. So two days before I quit drinking, I started smudging and I went to uh, not far from, uh, from my place, there's a river. And uh, I just went there to smudge for the first time because I had, uh, I had uh, scheduled an international smudging day because of, during the beginning of the pandemic. And so anyway, I went out there and I, I just, in my own little prayer, I just uh, asked for help to, to quit drinking because I knew I needed help with something. I knew I wanted to change something. So I was willing to do something I had never tried and that was to quit drinking. And uh, the initial plan wasn't to quit forever. It was just, it just started with a day mm -hmm. and then it went to two days and then, you know, almost four years later, but it was in that spiritual moment, that initial smudging that I, I cried out to my mom for help. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and now in retrospect, I got my calling two days after I asked for it. So wow. I smudged on the 27th and I, my first day of quitting to drink was uh, on the 29th. And, uh, and so I, 
you know, each day made me feel a little bit stronger. You know, each day uh, uh, made me see my worth. And, and I hate to say this, but it's, you mentioned my, my career pre-2016, pre post-2016. But in my real life, I, I feel as if I'm living a second life, if that makes any sense. Perfect uh, sense. I, I remember the person who was there back in 2010. I remember the person who boxed Justin Trudeau. And mm -hmm. I remember what he did, what he said. I, I remember very well, but I'm just not that person today. Mm -hmm. And I'm the furthest thing from that person, even though we share a lot of similarities, if I can say that. I don't want to sound too weird, but, uh, no, no, but I, you know, uh, I'm just taking advantage of, of what I have in terms of the life before me, whether, whether I have a year left, five years, 10 years, 20 years, I don't know, mm -hmm. but I'm, I'm just trying to make the best of it. And I, I have the, the privilege to, to be in the position that I have for another 25 years, if I so choose to do that. But in the meantime, just going forward, all I'm trying to do is live a healthy life. And if I have a healthy life, then I can give back as much as I can in the position that I have with the, with the parameters and the, with what I can. And uh, because at the end of the day, it's for me, it's all about that. It's not about me anymore. It's, it's about giving back and, and trying to do what I can for people. And I think that that answers your previous question into culturally what's inside me, what's inside me has always been to, to try and help people. And because that's what I'm, that's what I'm made of. I, I, it's before it used to be all about me. Oh, look at me. Look what I can mm -hmm. know. It's not about that anymore. It's who gives a shit about me, but I hope that people, some people give a shit about what I'm trying to do with, with the cards that I have been dealt. And because I, I'm a good hearted person, I'm a, I'm a hard worker and people who know me know that. And that's how I was. That's how I was when I, when, before I got involved into partisan politics. Unfortunately, that, that took over a small period of my life. But because at the end of the day, like I said, we all need each other. You'll remember, you'll remember the occupation that took place in Ottawa, for example. A lot of people had uh, bad things to say about that, and which I agree in many circumstances. But at the same time, those are the exact people. If, we're, if Canada's at war, and we hope we're never at war, but those are the people we want on our front lines. Yeah. You know? So, so when I say we all need each other, we may not need each other today, but in the future, we, we all need each other. And that's, we have to try and see the best in people as opposed to seeing where we differ so much. And we started with this before at the beginning. I remember people who were conservative were able to vote liberal and vice versa. And I'm seeing less of that now. And I'm seeing more, more discourse of, of over what people uh, don't agree on as opposed to what they agree upon. Mm. And perhaps that's, that's social media. Perhaps that's just me getting a little bit older, but I just, uh, we should focus on where we have commonalities. Uh, that's where we, that's where we do a better job at building things than, than destroying them. Focusing on where we disagree is a complete waste of time. It's a, Agreed. it's usually a complete waste of time in our personal life when we may be discussing with our significant other or whatever it's a complete waste of time and politics is no different why do we put so much emphasis on where we we differ from people that it doesn't mean very much we're all canadian whether we like it or not we're supposed to be all canadian we're supposed to be all trying to build a a stronger canada for all of us but but unfortunately we're not we're not there but some of us are trying some of us are trying. You, you say that, and, and it makes me, it reminds me of Justin's father's speech when he was leaving. He said, Canada's a dream. Don't let the dream die. We have a lot of work to do, obviously. Yeah. Senator, you mentioned something in that response that resonated with me when you were talking about a you that was, that existed then, that you recognize 
you admit was there, but it's almost like with every step that you're taking on your journey, you're getting further away from that person and becoming the person who you are. Knowing what you know now, what would you have told that person then? To be patient. Just to be patient. When I came in, not just when I came in, but most senators, when they're nominated to the position, it's not as if we get a, an introductory course or a crash course as to how things operate. Now, I knew how things operated politically. I just didn't know how, how dangerous partisanship can get. I, I didn't know how vile people were. So maybe I was a little bit naive in that respects. I saw how human beings could be very all about themselves. Mm -hmm. Could be, I can, I've met people who are very thirsty for power. And I, I met a lot of good people as well, but I've met, the, I've met the good, the bad, and the ugly in terms of politics. And so the only thing that I would tell myself is sometimes keep your mouth shut and just be patient. Things don't happen overnight. It's not just because you think they're good, they should happen overnight that they will. And so that's the only piece of advice that I would tell myself. Now, I don't know if it would have changed very much <laughs> 10 years ago because right. I was all full of piss and vinegar. And right. I, and I, I wanted people to, to like me. I was always that kind of person growing up, but, but I immediately saw in politics that uh, <laughs> you can't please everybody. And even though you try your darndest, you'll never please anybody. Uh, and, and that's sometimes just because of the partisanship. If you're, if you're a member of one political party, some people may choose not to talk to you just because you're part of that political party, but that's the stupidity of, of, of things. And mm -hmm. that's where politics uh, is landed now. It's uh, the less people know, the better it is for politicians. And that's, that's a dangerous uh, recipe. I, I just, I, I don't recommend that to everybody. People should be more than ever involved in their political parties, regardless of what their political parties are, because the less that they are, the more that they take advantage of their populations into drafting their own policies that may not reflect the views of Canadians or the majority of their membership and political parties like that. They're all about, oh, this big blue tent, this big red tent. But the fact of the matter is they like to divide people to make sure that whoever's in their tent is one color only. Uh, and I think that needs to change. Agreed. Now, Senator, but, but who am I? I'm just a non-elected senator, <laughs> wannabe politician here. <laughs> Senator, you've been very generous with your time. I do have one last question because I know I will be raked over the coals from our viewers and listeners if I did not ask it. It's about the boxing match. Yes. Everybody wants to know that. Now, we have some comments. and You, know, you were very gracious about the boxing match and that impressed a lot of people. What are your, what's your memory of it? I'm wondering, is it something that you did willingly or was it something that you felt pressured to do? How do you remember it? And if you were asked again to do it today, is that something that you would do? Thank you for the question. Uh, first and foremost, I've been asking for a rematch for the last 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> and the prime minister, the current prime minister has not even responded. But I'm still waiting. Um, I think he's going to take his win and run. <laughs> every boxer gets a second chance. I mean, Muhammad Ali got it. I'm not saying yeah. I, certainly not in the same category. Far from it. But I still deserve a rematch <laughs> because I would not lose this time. And the reason why I would not lose is because ten years ago, when when we had the boxing match to raise funds for cancer research, 
uh, smoking half a pack of cigarettes a day. And, yeah. and if you're a smoker, you shouldn't box. And I underestimated the guy. I, we trained both of us for four months, but he had been training for 20 years. Yes. Uh, and even though I had a martial arts background, uh, martial arts is not the same thing as exactly. boxing for those no. who have uh, practiced both of them. So I it underestimated wasn't MMA. the guy. I, I took the boxing lightly. I took it serious, but uh, I didn't mean as, as I should have. So I felt a lot of shame after, obviously, after I lost for, for several months, for almost a year, I, I felt shame because I, I know in my heart of hearts and in my mind of minds, I should have never lost that boxing match. But after the first round where I almost knocked him out, I couldn't just, fo I couldn't follow up with any other punch. My head was telling me to, but my arms just felt like they weighed 300 pounds each. Mm -hmm. and, I, and anybody who's boxed a bit and get winded and know what the heck I'm talking about. It, it's one of the worst feelings uh, in the world, uh, but it happened to me. And after the first round, I sat down and I, I told my trainer, I, I, I said, I'm toast. He said, no, just take it easy. Second round and come back to third round. But I was never able to, to, to get my win back. And so uh, it was a very, again, public uh, humiliating loss. Mm. And, but having said that we did raise uh, a lot of money. Uh, I personally raised more money than the millionaire prime minister did. Uh, <laughs> on go. a personal level, That's a win. I raised uh, uh, twice as much as he did. I think I had raised 13,000 individually and he raised about 6,000. But, uh, but I'm ready for the rematch. Uh, I'm glad I did it. I would do it again just because I think it was a good thing for politi politics mm -hmm. at the time. It was. Obviously, uh, he, his road went, uh, he took a different road than I did. Uh, but uh, having said that, I'm, I've got longevity on, on my side. And after he's long gone, hopefully I'll still be there. But uh, maybe he'll give, me, he'll give me another shot after he's prime minister, which uh, I'll still be open to. Still want that rematch. I deserve it. And uh, I'm ready for it. <laughs> it, it was the, 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 one of the things that stuck in my mind at the time what you said and you've you revisited that again today was in, in a certain frame if you will it was you underestimate this man at your own peril don't underestimate him he's and people have his whole life because of who he was he's the prime minister's son we waited he became the prime minister and up until that boxing match i didn't like the man i thought he was this spoiled little punk and i thought Honestly, I was cheering for you. I thought you were going to rip his face off. And when it was all over, I was like, I saw him in a different light that day. And my attitude towards him changed. And then I started doing a little bit of reading discovered He actually had some real jobs before he was in politics. He worked as a bouncer. He worked as a snowboard instructor. He worked as, a, as an educator. So it's like I learned, he earned my respect. Let's put it that way. You've always had my respect. Thank you. Look, I, <laughs> a lot of people, even within his own party, thought he was going to lose because mm -hmm. a lot of, uh, a lot of liberals were put money on, on me <laughs> during the fight. And at that time, and I'm not, I'm not full of myself, which is what you get, but I firmly believe that had I beat him that night in March 31st, 2012, that he wouldn't be prime minister today. I, agree. I, I, I firmly believe that because, because a lot of people saw him as weak, as frail, as a little bit more feminine at that time. And I, once he beat me, obviously that changed the perspective of a lot of reporters across Canada, which started writing more masculine stories about him mm -hmm. and after that. So yeah, obviously it, it helped him a great deal. 
while I was suffering and <laughs> feeling sorry about myself for a year after that loss. But, but no, no, truly, I don't think I've said this before, but I truly don't think you'd be prime minister today. I'm still, I've said this, I'm still waiting for the thank you from the liberal party, but I haven't received it yet. <laughs> I, I yeah, completely I have a couple of kids in the though. chat thanking you right now. <laughs> completely well, I, agree I said, with you, though. Yeah, well, I've said this before, too. To all of those who are happy that I won, you're welcome. And to all of those who are uh, are happy, I'm sorry. I couldn't give them an, an extra punch at the end. <laughs> uh, the important thing, though, however, that we're learning from this interview is that you are winning at life. Yes. That's the only, that's the only fight that matters to me. And that's the only thing that maybe not now, but later, that's the only fight that will mean anything to my kids. Yes. And mm. that, that's the only thing I have in my mind. That's, mm -hmm. it's all about my kids. It's, they're going to have, they're going to have a, a non-alcoholic home that they're going to grow up in. And that's, I think that's one of the best things that I can do for them. A dad that is healthy and present is a very important gift. It's, it's something that I wasn't necessarily able to do with, with my older children who are mostly all adults now, but at some beginning of my career, I was traveling quite a bit. So I wasn't able to be as a steady dad as I am today. All the decisions all for my kids today. Senator, thank you so much. This has been a joy. Absolutely. I just want, gentlemen, I just want you to know if question period in the House of Commons and in the Senate, use the tone of your voice, we would be in a much better Canada. Oh, wow. thank you. That is, okay. This when I get a compliment, I always consider the source. That is Absolutely. high praise indeed. This is how politicians, that, this is how the, their tone of voice should be. There would be a lot more love and respect all across the board. You got it. I thought we would have maybe got you to cry today. You got it. <laughs> yeah, I broke down a couple of times. I'm not going to lie. Oh, man. Thank you so much. That, 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 that's a, a wonderful compliment. Uh, Senator, we know that uh, a Democratic uh, official's most valuable and precious asset is their time. You've given us a lot of it. And we um, thank you. You are always always welcome here at the beaver lodge if you need to talk to canadians again about your senate bill if you need to apply a little pressure and anything please call on us anytime you have a home here that's that's so wonderful to know and just know that i will certainly take advantage of that in in the future i think what you guys are doing is is incredible i i love watching and when when i had the opportunity to to be on i i told i quickly told my staff to get a hold of you guys and let's get this conversation done because i i love having these types of conversations i know that i know that it can help many people and there's nothing wrong with the, nothing wrong with that no. then let your colleagues know we'd be happy to have them too yeah. <laughs> will do absolutely oh thank you thank you this has been such a wonderful gift i'm not quite sure how to end this elegantly so <laughs> i will just wish you a wonderful day and and thank you to to, to debbie and michelle they've been a pleasure to deal with mm. that's well, why they, they that's why they are working with me they are certainly a, a pleasure to, uh, to to have them as colleagues and i really appreciate your you. verbiage there sir i appreciate what you just said they're working with me. They don't work for you. They work with you. I, I'm no one's boss. I'm a colleague. I'm a work colleague. That's collaboration right there, man. Have a you ever want to get together for a cup of coffee, 
I'm just over on Elgin Street. <laughs> Absolutely. Have a most wonderful day, sir. Thank you, sir. Well, have a wonderful day and enjoy your weekend, guys. Thanks, All you right. too. You take care. Bye Cheers. Bye-bye. Oh, wow. What an awesome individual. And I love that he expressed how the same thing I had uh, the same feeling. I own my past. Everything I did there got me to where I am today. And, and that's important to own it. Don't regret it. It got you to where you, it got you here. How you got here is not important. The fact that you're here now is what is important. Yeah, absolutely. Like this, I, I, I've shared a little bit with the kids throughout the year mm -hmm. about my childhood and my past. And it's the same thing. It's like the, there are days where I sit there and say, you know what? It sure maybe would have been nice to have it had an easier path. But yeah, I am the sum of my experiences. And I really like me. Mm. <laughs> I like you. I look too. in the mirror. I like what I see. I like you too. <laughs> but I like what I see. And it's, I don't want to say absolutely no regrets, but in one way, yeah, absolutely mm. no regrets. Yeah. We've all done things in our past that were like, oh, I could have done that a certain way. But yeah, I have to go. You, 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 when you've made a mistake or you've harmed someone, you learn from the mistake, you move forward and do better. When you know better, you do better. You, you say that all the time, and I agree 100%. When you know better, you do better. So moving forward, accepting the things that we've done in our past, some of them, we're all, there's, we all have our embarrassing moments, but it's brought us to where we are today. And that's the important thing. We're here, we're present, we're in the moment, and we're trying to make the world a better place. As we often say on the show, none of us, and listeners, viewers, this applies to you. None of us are our worst moment. No. Uh, you can't take a single moment in time and say, that's how this person is 24 7, 365. Nobody's like that. No. No. Even the horrible people we don't like aren't like that all the time. No, no, that's true. Oh, man. Whew. How's that? A, how's that a way to kick off your Friday? We're I, going into the weekend uh, on a cloud right now. I think I have afterglow. Yeah, no, I do. I do. <laughs> is no, that, I is honestly that, do. Is that possible to have afterglow from an interview? I certainly looks like it. Wow. Wow. The kits. Okay. They, wow. The comments here. TV smiling, hopeful, and happy for change. Oh, sorry. I'm standing in front of my TV smiling, hopeful, and happy for change. Lads, your credibility is growing for he reached out to you for the interview. Kid James, the trajectory of this podcast cannot be overstated. Um, your interviews just keep getting better and better. You keep topping yourselves. This show keeps getting better. Congrats, you guys. Worth getting my ass out of bed for. Paul and Douglas, I'm so proud of you both. Listen, this made my day. Great mm -hmm. show. Thank you, kids, for coming, for joining us, for staying with us throughout the whole thing. Those of you who have been here at the beginning, those of you who came later, I'm pretty sure that you're going to go back and watch. You need to understand your contribution mm. to this because without your support and without the work that you have put in by showing up here, 
by watching, by taking your precious time Mm -hmm. and giving us the gift of your attention to tune into what we have to say, retweeting us, sending us support. Um, We wouldn't have grown as quickly as we have. We had a five-year plan. We had no expectation that this is where we would be. Today, no. At this point. We were hoping that by year five, we would be close to where we are now. Yes. When we say the best damn fam in all the podcasting. We're serious. We're seriously, we mean that we are so grateful to you because it's you tuning in numbers like you do and saying complimentary things about us that have gotten us noticed. Yes. And this, this is, there have been a couple of people who have written in and asked if we can take on a subject like the, the can't remember John, I believe his name is can't remember his last name, but who wanted to talk to us about the seniors residence that was being transitioned into personal com- or commercial property in a way that was just not doing right by and the residents was, here. That was a couple of years ago when we yeah. first really started it prior to YouTube when we yeah. were just audio only. Yeah. And more recently, Leanne and Jordan's mom mm-hmm. who came to us with the subject. This was, we had expressed online and we have expressed on the show how much we would love to have an interview with Senator Brazo. For quite some time. Yes. But they reached out to us. Yes. That doesn't happen without, without numbers and positive word of mouth. So that if you've enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to pat yourselves on the back as well. Because you made this happen just as much as whatever efforts we've put in over the last few years, whatever support we've gotten from our network and from Dean. Mm -hmm. It is what you do for us and what you contribute to the show is intrinsic to moments like this happening. And we are so grateful to you. Mr. Grizzly, do we have a show? We do. We do indeed. Kids and Cubs. That's the end of this episode of the Daily Beaver Morning Show and the True North Eager Beaver Interview Project. A very special event. This is the biggest name that we've had. We knew, given the quality of our guest and his journey, that this had the potential to be our most engaging conversation yet. Hopefully, we've succeeded in that. If you would like to help us out more, please tell your peeps and poops all about us because sharing is caring and word of mouth is priceless. If you would like not to miss an episode, you don't have to. Thanks to wonderful members of the damn fam, such as the Ray Girl, who has sponsored our pod page. So if you scan that QR code that's underneath my chin, that will bring you to our pod page site. That's podpage.com slash the true north eager beaver, lowercase letters with a hyphen between each one of those words. And that way, when we have something fresh off the bandwidth, we make sure that it gets delivered directly to you. I'm not going to make any cheeky jokes this day <laughs> on this one. If you would like to support us on uh, in other ways, go to our YouTube page, the True North Eager Beaver Media Incorporated YouTube site, 
And there we have three buttons, like, share, and subscribe. Make like Kit Elaine and smash those buttons. And if you enjoyed this episode or you enjoy the work that we do in general and would like to encourage us to do more, that QR code that's above and a little to the right of Mr. Grizzly's head because he's a little out of frame right now, brings you to our coffee page and the Eager Beaver Lodge Emergency Hydration Fund, where today, especially, we are dealing in hot chocolate, coffee, and smoothies in honor of Patrick Brazos, Senator Patrick Brazos' effort to bring attention to maybe reducing, if not stopping, alcohol consumption and to enable the label. That's the hashtag, by the way, if you want to promote that on your Twitter feeds, enable the label. You scan that QR code and that brings you to our coffee page where you can make a contribution and we appreciate everything that you do for there for us there. And if you're not able to make a contribution, said your presence, the gift of your attention, retweeting, all of that means the world to us. It's just as valuable. All right. So if you can't contribute money, do not feel that you're letting us down in any way. There are many other ways that you can help. Because democracy is something that you do, again, take a tip from Senator Brazo, write those letters. I guess let's help Kit Leanne and Kit Angela with the petition and hamiltonhelps.com, I believe it is, and asking our elected officials and our appointed officials like senators to make homelessness and addressing it a priority because not addressing it is a policy choice. Asking them to encourage passage of Senator Brazo's Senate bill so that we can get these warning labels on our alcohol products so that we can bring attention to the fact that alcohol is a direct cause of seven leading cancers. Because, hey, we all have to do our bit to reduce the stress on our healthcare system. Get your shots. All of them, RSV, pneumococcal, COVID, the flu. This is peak respiratory season, and it will be until April. So, again, make sure that you're doing all you can to do right by our hospital staff. And, yeah. Mr. Grizzly, do you have some words of wisdom? Yes, I do. Sorry, I'm working here at the same time. Check in on your peeps that I've said before many yeah. times, and I'm going to say it again, especially today, and considering what we just talked about. Check in on your friends, your family, your loved ones, your coworkers, the ones who you know have a mental health issue, and even the ones you don't know. If you see their behavior is radically altered, they're not themselves. Just say, hey, everything okay? You all right? Do you want to talk about it? Because you're not yourself right now. And uh, chocolate bar is not going to fix it. You're not yourself when you're hungry. Yes. yes. Got it. <laughs> I have to have a little bit of humor. The serious subject matter. I'm a guy after all. We deal with things. We deal with pain with humor. Uh, but if please check in on those folks because... Again, like I said, time and time again, January is a tough time of the year. And I think we've had one sunny day this month. <laughs> like, I really need more sunshine, man. It, it's even though my dark cloud of depression has been lifted from me, it's still 
dreary and overcast and cloudy and freezing rain. And can we get some sunshine, man? So bring some sunshine into somebody else's life. Check in on them. Ask how they're doing. If you look at the QR code next to my head, that takes you to my coffee page for my ASMR mental health chat channel. If you want to donate, that's great. If not, don't worry about it. I don't take it personally. It's a channel that I started doing a couple of years ago to talk about mental health. And as the channel grows, I appreciate everybody. I think, what am I up to now? 2,600 subscribers. So wow. it's, yeah, it's really growing. So I want to thank everybody for that. If you want to take part, it's Monday nights at 9 p.m. And I'm going to start to do it twice a week now. And I'll be dropping in little five-minute clips here and there as I am scheduling, uh, restructuring my schedule. So I'll have more time to do that, to dedicate to it. Because if anybody knows me, they know how much mental health and talking about it is how important it is to me because it's important to every one of us. Mm-hmm. So check in on your friends, family, loved ones, coworkers. If you see that their behavior is radically altered or radically changed, ask them if they're okay. Mm-hmm. Mr. Grizzly, please uh, include the link to your chat channel here in the, in the chat for our kids and cubs. I think that would be very important today and actually say it out loud for our listeners because they might not know where to find you. One second. Let me just, I will, I'll pull it up. I just have to switch my account. <laughs> I've got multiple accounts here for the YouTube, right? Yes. And let me just go to the channel and I'll get you the link. Here we are. 2,590 subscribers now. So almost, almost, almost 2,600. That's impressive. I am so happy for you. Thank you. There, I'll copy the link. I'm going to put it in the chat. It's, it's youtube.com backslash at Polly's world 2005. And it will take you to my ASMR YouTube channel for live mental health chats every Monday evening at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. All right, there. Mr. Riz, I don't know if the PBS article on the alcohol-related deaths in Colorado was also chat. shared. Yeah, okay. I did. Yeah. Cool. Kits, if you would like to write to us, I did mention that, but our email address is truenorthacrebeaver at gmail.com. We love to hear from you, so please write there. Kit Jillian, I saw in the chat there that you said that she wrote to Crier with, with an interview suggestion. If you'd like to send it to us as well, if we can act on, that would be great. Something I also want to let the kids know that I'm doing in case they're not on our uh, Twitter feed, and uh, I'll put the link here for you to put on, Mr. Grizzly, is I've been going through the federal court decision, the whole decision, beginning to end, and I've been making, taking out uh, the interesting nuggets and making uh, notes on it, and I created a Twitter thread uh, about it. I am... I've done it so far in three shifts and I got a fourth one to do. I thought it was something that I would be able to do in one afternoon. Essentially, it's basically taken, taken me three days. I do not know how lawyers go through all these texts so quickly to prepare cases. I found a new respect for them. But a lot of people have been finding value in the work based on the comments. So I'm thinking that maybe you would do as well. So if you would like to understand uh, the federal court decision a little better, I've been going through it, taking out important nuggets, highlighting important things that are in there so that it could be made more accessible for people who don't have time to read the whole thing. And so think of it as a bit as a, a Cole notes and a, Cole's notes and a um, um, political literacy tool to help you understand the decision more thoroughly. And you might be happy to know that federal court justice Richard Mosley 
That's a little bit of sass going on under those robes. Oh, yes. Yeah, there's a couple to, yeah, it's always written in very eloquent and elegant judge speak. But there's a couple of times where I do a judge speak to English translation <laughs> of what this really means. And uh, yeah, there's a couple of applicants in there with which he, with whom he was not impressed at all. Mr. Grizzly just put it up there. Remember also, kids, that tomorrow, this Saturday, January 27th, is Holocaust Remembrance Day, an internationally recognized opportunity to remember the atrocities of the Holocaust, to support survivors, and educate future generations to ensure it never happens again. So if you can participate in some way or even just take a moment to remember or to commit to making sure that education and knowledge is out there or making a moment to personally commit to never again, because we said never again back then for a reason, that would be very important. All right. I've blathered on long enough. Mr. Grizzly, please roll the credits. I can do that in just a second. I'm trying to do three things here at once. So sometimes it's a little bit challenging, but I You are listening to a True North Eager Beaver Media Incorporated podcast. The True North Eager Beaver podcasts are proudly brought to you by our founding sponsors. The Misfee Mysteries from Corvid Moon Publishing, your source for science fiction, fantasy, and cozy mysteries featuring a broad diversity of characters. CanadianTarot.com, your uniquely Canadian online eclectic tarot community, and the Peppermaster. Hot pepper sauces made from farm-fresh ingredients to thrill your taste buds and expand your mind. We are grateful to the Cryer Media Network for its support, Pete Jarvis for our artwork, and Paul Joseph Something for our opening and closing sequence music. And just a quick Easter egg. Unfortunately, there will not be a second doubles Grand Slam title for Gabriella Dabrowski. Last night, she was playing in the semifinal, and even though in both sets they had a 5-3 lead, they were not able to close it off, and they ended up losing their match. But in a big surprise, Novak Djokovic lost in a wow. semifinal or final for, I think, the first time in 20 years or so, or not 20 years, in, in 10 years at the Australian Open, losing a match to Yannick Sinner in four sets. Just yeah, the, a big surprise. I actually stayed up to watch it, which I probably shouldn't have because <laughs> this was going on this morning, but I did because it was so compelling. But good effort from Gabriela Dabrowski, semifinals and doubles and quarterfinals and mixed doubles. The year is getting off to a good start. All right, kids. Have a wonderful weekend. I'll see you. This is Charles Adler. After a few years of working on radio and television, The Charles Adler Show has evolved to a natural place in 2023. YouTube, podcast, and open RSS. You'll hear the show as it always has been delivered, concise, with context, clarity, and empathy. And as a bonus, the guests will be natural-born storytellers who won't fear telling stories that are personal and emotional. They won't fear uncomfortable questions. Most important, they won't fear me. Follow me on Twitter at Charles Adler and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts.
I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network.